Welcome to Podblast Canada. My name is Shuvalay Majumdar. I'm the Monk Senior Fellow uh, for Foreign Policy at the McDonald Laurie Institute, and this is our premier podcast. Continuing our National Security Nerd Fest series, we commenced originally with Ward Elcock a few episodes ago. Today, I am joined by Dick Fadden, former National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada, Defence Apparatchik, Intelligence Apparatchik, Immigration Apparatchik. <laughs> this man has done just about everything you can imagine in the national interest of our great country, Canada. Dick, welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. I'm also enthusiastically uh, welcoming you to the Institute as part of our high-level panel on national security uh, issues. Uh, this is an initiative that we're taking on at the McDonald Laurie Institute, which you've graciously agreed to join. Uh, and I wanted to take advantage of our time today to talk about some of these big national security challenges that Canada has to address. So to, be, to, to kick it off, I'd like to start talking about what you see in this age of disruption particularly when it comes to foreign disruptions to Canadian democracy. We know that there are many actors around the world. You've been very active in national media and our national debate on the kind of threats that Canadians can expect to contend with. Uh, I would love to get a high level view from you on what you think are the biggest things that Canadians should be concerned about. That's a very good question. But let me start by reminding us that this ain't new. All of this disruption is taking on a new twist because of the World Wide Web and all of this sort of thing. Right. But, you know, if you Google political disruptions, you know, you'll find that there's a long list uh, going back into two centuries of countries trying to interfere in the electoral processes and to the political processes of other countries. And oddly enough, you will be surprised, perhaps you won't be, but some of your listeners may be surprised to learn that. The premier country is the United States. They did this a lot in the past. I to us? Not to us, just generally around Noted. the world. <laughs> so my point is, this isn't new. And mm. we need to stop getting uh, all that excited because it's not new. It's the methodology that's new. Mm -hmm. uh, so today, I think there are two ways that this is taking place, two or three ways that it's taking place. One, through uh, the diasporas of mm -hmm. various and sundry countries. You, you'll know them as well as I do. This is an indirect way of uh, countries talking to their former citizens who are now in Canada. There are social groups, cultural groups. Sometimes they give them money, sometimes they don't, but it's a way of you know getting people to think in a particular way. Uh, one or two countries in particular uh, provide a fair bit of funding to the ethnic press. Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's a fair number of people, there are a fair number of people in this country from abroad. This is one way of influencing a not inconsiderable number of, of our new uh, new Canadians. The second way, I think, is uh, through misinformation. Uh, you'll remember, perhaps, uh, the various investigations in the United States reveal that uh, an organization, I think it was out of St. Petersburg, right. was uh, broadcasting on the net a variety of, of uh, issues, commentary and whatnot about the United States, giving the impression that it was originating in the United States from an NGO. I don't think Canada in any shape, way, or fashion is immune from this, but this is one way of doing it. And part of the difficulty is attribution. I mean, I know if you're prepared to spend a lot of time, money, and effort, most countries' national security agencies can eventually get back very close to the entity that's broadcasting, but you can't always do that because they use cutouts. And well, you'll know the web is as complicated as it possibly can be. It's full of lies. It's full of lies, and it's just generally complicated. Uh, so the idea of simply broadcasting uh, false information that causes people to uh, think in a different way. I think the third way is actual interference with uh, the electoral process. 
you take political parties, uh, you take the electoral officers of various countries, and you, you can play with information that's in their databases, you can add new information, you can subtract. I don't think we've seen any uh, clear evidence of that happening in this country. Uh, but if you add to that financing, there are clear examples in Europe, for mm -hmm. example, of Russia financing uh, some parties. <clears throat> you put all that in a stew, I think it's potentially quite a toxic stew. And I think we're being very naive if we ignore this entirely. And I know the government of Canada has undertaken a number of steps to deal with this. The downside to that is that we can probably protect our formal electoral process. And every now and then we can catch people, you know, who are using the ethnic press. But the Internet is not controllable by one country. And in particular, if our adversaries in this respect are sophisticated, as many of them are, how are we going to control this? So we're basically dealing with the provision of false information to be used for political or electoral processes. And I don't think we've quite worked our way through entirely yet how to deal with it. Uh, you know, the United States has become more, uh, I think, preoccupied with this than we have, and they haven't come up with a solution either. Yes, we can narrow the band of possible interference or disruption, as you call it, but I don't think we can eliminate it. Do you have a sense as to whether Canadian society fully appreciates the threat that we are, we are faced under? Because what you've described goes into everybody's pockets in their phones and in their homes and their laptops um, as direct news uh, that could seem originally credible. Do, do Canadians fully appreciate the depth mm. of how you know, foreign actors are trying to disrupt their understanding of truth? You know, uh, I don't think everybody does. I think there's a growing awareness in Canada of the risks of cyber propaganda, for lack of a better way of putting it, because mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. But generally speaking, I think most Canadians go about their work. And unless their bank account is interfered with, unless their identity is stolen, or unless something pretty directly affecting them occurs, they don't really worry about this sort of stuff. Am I suggesting that all Canadians are naive? No, I'm not. But, you know, people are busy, people are preoccupied, and sure. there's all sort of evidence that people are increasingly reinforcing their own views by going to one source of news. And I think that's one of the worst things you can do, because if you keep doing that over a long period of time, you lose track with what might be or might not be true or false. So I think, you know, the government has just announced a new cyber policy. I think that's good news. I think it's going to mean more cooperation with the private sector, which has been lacking in this country. And I think a whole bunch of more information, more talk about this, including this conversation, is right. helpful. Right. But do I feel totally relaxed that the majority of Canadians? No, I'm not. So to an ordinary Canadian living their lives today, who would you say are the most responsible? Which countries would you say are perhaps the most responsible to try and affect their mainstream opinion about a major global event? Can you think of a few? Well, I think there are two principal ones, and there will be no surprise to you or anyone else. I think it's uh, Russia and China. Right. They are what I would call revisionist states. But couldn't we all just get along? Couldn't we just have a great partnership with the Russians and the Chinese somehow? I think because there are revisionist states, no. And revi by revisionist state, I mean they are profoundly unhappy with the way the world is organized today. They don't like their place in it, and they want things to change. Neither is going to go to war over this, but both of them are going to do everything they practically can in order to move the file as they see it. So uh, they're the two main ones, and I think they go about it systematically. They're quite sophisticated. And again, I go back to my earlier comment, unless it affects individuals or mm -hmm. a family or a group or a company, people just don't worry about it. One of the big issues I think, I've been arguing about this for a long time, is that Canadians, generally speaking, 
don't feel threatened. So we don't talk about national security issues unless something catastrophic occurs. And we've been blessed. We haven't had a catastrophic event for some time now. Mm -hmm. So because of that, you mix it all in together. Absolutely. There are a lot of people who are aware of all of this, but I would argue the majority of Canadians are preoccupied with other things. And where do you see debate happening? Because you think of a lot of the Canadian mainstream media, you think of the ethnic press, as you described, and journalism traditionally, which is obviously being challenged today in its own age of disruption. Where do you see sources of real debate and honest facts being able to be deliberated amongst mainstream Canadian opinion? Is it a piecemeal thing that individual citizens must take on on their own to try and confront uh, the validity of the sources of information? Or is it something that should be managed and supported by the government, some sort of place or repository where uh, at least the most extreme fake news is described as fake news for what it is? Well, I think to begin with, Canadians, all of us, you and I and everyone else, we have a basic responsibility ourselves to make sure that what we're, what we're relying on to guide our thinking is real. There's a limit to what the average person, there's a limit to what you and I can do. Right. I mean, people can't spend hours and hours checking various sources of news. But I think it is possible for a single individual, instead of just looking at one source, to look at two or three. You know, there's no harm in doing that. Your question about whether government should be involved, I really hesitate because I think governments would rapidly be accused, whether they intended it or not, and I suspect they would not intend it, of spinning things, of taking things from their perspective. I think it would be better to have organizations like uh, the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, other think tanks, and universities, either alone or together, or create a new NGO. I mm -hmm. think there are such things in the United States. I don't think there are in Canada. Mm -hmm. That would pick up at least the worst, the most egregious cases. My gut instinct tells me this would not be a good thing to ask governments to do. Yeah, I, I respect that a lot. Civil society is usually the best defender mm -hmm. of our civil society. Mm -hmm. I want to move on a little bit to this question of cyber. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many ways to cut and slice and dice what a cyber threat is, whether it's cyber, cyber propaganda, cyber threat, cyber defense. You uh, are probably the most uh, senior civil servant that has the, the greatest amount of experience in dealing with what this this new proposition of cyber actually means. Could you do us a favor and deconstruct for us how to think about cyber? Well, I don't know if I'm the most experienced, and I'm certainly not the wisest, but I'll, I'll give it a kick uh, because I think you're dead right. The implication in your question is that we're not going to be able to deal with cyber if we keep thinking about cyber globally. It mm -hmm. has to be broken down. So I think it has three or four main components. Let me start with the one which I think will have the least impact on Canadians on a day-to-day -day basis, and that's cyber war. Uh, we already have very clear evidence that Russia, in a couple of instances, Ukraine being one, have used uh, their capacity, their offensive cyber capacity, to not only pass on information that's incorrect, to disrupt the countries they were concerned with, but they've closed down uh, critical infrastructure and they've, done, they've closed down communications devices. At what point in time does doing that in a cyber way become an act of war? <clears throat> because if you're closing down a country's communications capacity kinetically, mm -hmm. you know, through the use of bang-bang force, mm -hmm. that would be clearly an act of you war. You drop a bomb on a yeah. distribution center. Yeah, <clears throat> that would be an act of war. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, generally speaking, the, uh, the militaries and the ministries of defense and the justice ministries of the West have worked their way through mm -hmm. what this is. There's a lot of talk about it. So that's cyber war. You know, it really affects our soldiers uh, whenever they're, dis uh, they're dispatched overseas. And there's a subcomponent of that, which is just simply misinformation in a military context, which is quite worrisome. 
And as I think you know, there's a bill before Parliament uh, providing uh, the military and CSE with the capacity to launch offensive uh, operations uh, to protect our forces. So that's cyber war. Right. I think the next biggie is cyber crime. It is a significant issue. You know, uh, the United Nations estimated, I think the last time I looked was a couple of years ago, that over a trillion dollars a year in intellectual property is stolen by states, by criminal groups, by NGOs, whatever. A trillion dollars. A trillion dollars a year globally. It's that's, incredible. That's actually becoming real money. Yes. And I suspect it's probably more now. But if you add to that, and that's just intellectual property theft, you have ransomware, you know, right. you don't pay me, I don't release your computer. You have identity theft, largely operated through cyber. You have a whole variety of these various and sundry uh, uses of the cyber capacity to commit crimes. I mean, I couldn't go on right now because I haven't thought about it too much, but there's a long list of discrete activities. And I don't think we're, we think of them as quite as serious as a physical crime. You know, assault and battery, you understand, people get upset about it. Uh, ransomware occurs to other people, unless mm -hmm. it affects you, you know. But ransomware is something that's spreading, mm -hmm. as is identity theft, and as, as is accessing people's bank accounts. So you keep, again, you keep adding on each of these discrete activities, and you have a significant problem with cybercrime. And I think uh, Mr. Goodale in his announcement recently on the cyber policy is placing a fair bit of, of emphasis on this. Hmm. So that's a second broad category. The third category I would call is, and we've been talking about already, I call it cyber propaganda. I mean, there's probably a more elegant way of putting it, but is the use of cyber tools of the internet to propagate views in a way that is not immediately obvious to the receiver. You know, to give you an example, if a diplomat in Canada advocates the views of his country to you or I up front, there's no problem. That's their job. Right. If that embassy is operating uh, a, a cyber site, an internet site that is called something else, right. that is operating underneath the radar and is trying to change our perspectives on things political, social or economic, to my mind, that's cyber propaganda. Right. It's an interference in our sovereignty. It's an abuse, I think, of hospitality. And at one level or other, it could become a cyber crime. And in this environment of, you know, fake news, nobody quite knowing, you know, where they're coming and where they're going, I think this becomes a quite a serious problem. And in the last category, I would just put, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, cyber trouble. You know, it's people in civil society, it's groups like Anonymous, it's criminal organizations just generally trying to be disruptive using the internet and using cyber tools. They're doing a variety of things that have been happening for the last century, mm -hmm. but they're doing it from the comfort of their den or their living room, uh, and they're doing it quite effectively. So it's the sort of thing, again, and unless it affects people directly, they don't really register. And I guess one of the things that worries me a little bit about Canada, going back to our earlier conversation, it's not a general acceptance that this is an ongoing thing. I remember reading a, a year or so ago, there was a short article in the New York Times about a foreign country using a mom and pop mental sheeting firm in a southern state, got into their server and used that to get into uh, an agency of the United States government. Mom and pop sheet metal working firm, hmm. southern part of the United States. They, it never occurred to them, according to this article, in their wildest dreams right. that this could be affected. So the point I'm trying to make is that all of us are potential entry points for some of this trouble. And we're not particularly good, I'm not as good as I could be, about using the basic protections when you're using the World Wide Web as we should be. I don't change my passwords nearly enough. I don't either. 
And I can remember, you know, there was a survey about this uh, a couple of years ago, and I can remember people who are experts in this area sort of going, oh my God, this is unbelievable. I think it's slowly improving, but uh, a year or so ago, Gartner, the world famous uh, IT assessment agency said that 80% of the protection that you could provide against all of these attacks are basic things that you and I can do. Right. Changing passwords, leading the passwords, yes. you know, turning off your computer. There are a whole bunch of things you can do and most people don't do it. Hmm. When you look at both of these dimensions of the conversations we've had, foreign disruptions and the question of cyber, which is a brilliant deconstruction you've done here, I think. You keep referring to how this is not an immediate threat felt by ordinary Canadians. Mm -hmm. What are the consequences of neglecting this threat? Well, I think if you're a business, having your IP stolen. Right. You know, I think uh, if you're a government, having your critical infrastructure destroyed. I mean, Canada sort of divides up its economy for cyber protection purposes into sectors. You know, you have telecoms, uh, financial services, nuclear, you can go on and on. Right. And at various levels, they've developed the capacity to resist these various and sundry attacks. Probably none of them would say they've attained a state of nirvana and perfection. Right. So that's the economy. In civil society, you know, having access to, I mean, and I'm not joking when I say, somebody who was interested in playing with uh, people's thinking on uh, national issues in Canada, accessing MLI's computer base, right. database, right. would be something worth doing. Right. So, uh, you know, if you steal somebody's identity, if you steal some money from them, you keep adding these on, it becomes a practical manifestation of why I think people need to worry more about this than they do. But generally speaking, you know, if you look at the newspapers, unless it's a massive breach somewhere, it's, you know, sort of three inches on page 43, that something somewhere, you know, the University of XYZ had its database, mm -hmm. you know, uh, breached. I don't think we've quite registered yet uh, how encompassing is this threat. On that question of how encompassing threats can be, uh, you've been an active participant in seeing the world shift from a threat of naked conventional warfare and attack. Mm -hmm. We're talking bombs and spies mm -hmm. and missiles and uh, the very, very practical things we see in the movies. Uh, into this new era we're at where the enemy is invisible, where the national security threat has changed a mm -hmm. lot. The definition of national security itself also might be changing. I'm talking to the former national security advisor to the Canadian prime minister. So I'm asking you, in this, in this age that we are stepping into, how should governments conceive, at least Western governments, conceive of national security? It can't be necessarily housed in any one ministry. It's not like a foreign affairs thing or a defense thing or an immigration thing, it's all encompassing. So how do bureaucracies, how do governments actually respond to the threats that you're painting this, this rather frightening portrait about? Mm -hmm. Well, I think most of the, the governments in the West uh, have recognized for some years now that we need as holistic a definition of possible foreign defense, security policy, some elements of international economic policy, right. probably some elements of development policy, right. and some elements of trade policy. Uh, one way that, I mean, I think you know as well as I do, and many of your listeners will, that um, major international issues increasingly are being run by heads of state and head of government. Right. Communications is easier. There's trying, you know, so. And I think many of these countries have created positions within their own offices, national security advisor. I happen to be candidates for a brief period. But all of the countries in the Western Alliance have a, somebody like that. The main job, aside from keeping your boss informed and advising to the extent you want, is to make sure that the five or six or seven departments, I should have included borders and immigration, right. are actually talking to one another. And we're taking as holistic a view as we possibly can of how you protect Canadian sovereignty and Canadian interests. So 
I think we did quite well in uh, Afghanistan, for example, when we were there, because we had foreign affairs, development, and the military, the police, all understanding that a purely kinetic victory would get us nowhere. Right. You know, at the beginning of the time in Afghanistan, all of the allies were basically going in, hitting really hard, removing the Taliban from a particular area. And as soon as the military left, they came back again. So you had to establish police. You had to establish the rule of law. People had to have jobs. I mean, in Afghanistan for a while, when we started paying lower level Taliban supporters, they abandoned the Taliban which suggests to me that economics, diplomacy, the military all need to be woven together. And I think if you're a head of government or state, which I most certainly am not, you can't help but think when you're projecting your nation's interest about using every tool that's available. And sometimes you'll push diplomatic more than military. Sometimes you'll push uh, something else. But today in particular, I think there is no way that you can silo all of these various subcomponents of government and expect to, to make progress. Can you expect the kind of amalgamation on how you address the national security threat to happen from actors within government? Or is it time to propose how to think about it by doing a comparative example of how various Western countries look at this? Oh, I think you need to do both. I mean, each country is individual and it you know, has some unique features. And you know, whether you're a parliamentary system or something like the French Republic has or you know, a congressional system like the US, you'll have some variations. Uh, I think we should talk about it more. I right. mean, you and I know that uh, I think share the view that we don't talk about these issues enough in Canada. There was, I was asked by a parliamentary committee a couple of years ago whether I would favor a National Security Advisors Act in order to provide the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister with the authority to direct departments and agencies. And I said no. Interesting. Because in our parliamentary democracy, ministers are accountable from what their departments and agencies do. And I cannot imagine some poor deputy minister somewhere being told one thing by the NSA and something else by... Uh, his minister. <laughs> it just doesn't work in our system. Right. You know, uh, so, but talking about how these things happen, I think are important. I never thought uh, when I was NSA or when my predecessors were NSA for that manage that they lacked influence and a capacity to coordinate because you are acting on, the, on behalf of your boss, the prime minister. But in the end, we're a democracy. Right. Uh, the prime minister and ministers have to be accountable and have to have the authority to act. That doesn't prevent a whole bunch of bureaucratic devices, and I mean bureaucratic in the best sense of the word, governmental devices can't be used in order to force people in all of these departments and agencies to work together towards a common goal, which is advancing Canada's national security. I appreciate your time so very much today, Dick. It's been a fascinating discussion to have with you. Uh, it was an honor to work with you in government. Uh, and it's going to be a special honor to work with you in elevating this question of national security in Canada uh, here at the McDonald laurie Institute with a collection of some of your former colleagues. I very much look forward to that because, as I said earlier, I don't think we talk about these things enough. Uh, I don't think anybody has a silver bullet to most of these problems that we've been discussing. Uh, so I think that the group that you're thinking of uh, pulling together uh, can only make a useful contribution, and I look forward to contributing. Do you think sometimes we wish we see the world as we wish it were rather than as it actually is? Yes. Well, we'll have to fix that, shouldn't yes. we? Thank you so much for your My time. My pleasure. Bye Good. Bye.